This is Science Plus Story. I'm Bob Lalish. On today's show, Red Teams for Research. Social psychologist Daniel Lakins thinks peer review should evolve like everything else. To get there, he's subjecting new research to a red team approach borrowed from software, where developers pay independent teams bounties to find bugs in their code. Sounds promising, but he's finding that red teaming runs up against a fundamental problem in science. I think that we just see that there is no place for the critics. I love critics. Like, I think criticism in science is really important, but it's not appreciated. People very often get upset if you criticize their work. So there seems to be no place where these people can do their work without being told, like, oh, you're so harsh or you're so, you know, uh, aggressive or something. I mean, it's very often a critic, you know, yeah, people don't like them very often, if they, uh, even if they do it for the best intentions. Coming up, Daniel talks about whether peer review is really in crisis, the challenges of using research red teams, and how hiring a red team to improve your paper could make communicating that paper much easier. Daniel Lockins, welcome to Science Plus Story. Great to be here. Thanks so much. Sure. So let's start by defining a red team approach. What is a red team approach and why would one take it? <laughs> a red team, the idea is that you make sure that you have internal criticism. So before you head out into the scary world, you've made sure that whatever ID or product or service you're developing has been adequately tested by people who are trying to be very critical and trying to tear it down in some way. So the idea of a red team actually comes from software development, where one side tries to hack into the system that the other side is developing before it's made public and available to users, so that it already has survived the first line of criticism, so to say. So in the research review process, a red team comes typically before the peer review process, before something is submitted to a journal. Do I have that correct? That's the idea, indeed. I mean, it's not implemented so much, although there are some examples of um, groups of scientists who do this. And indeed, the idea is that before you go out and go through the normal peer review process, or maybe even before you go through the effortful process to collect all your data and do all the hard work, you've tested the idea and the, the setup and the design, for example, to make sure that every step along the way has been criticized and is as solid as it could be. So... Why would one use a red team approach? Why isn't peer review enough? I mean, everybody who's not a scientist thinks about peer review, uh, even journalists, for example. Paper comes out, it's published in a nameplate journal. There must be something behind it. So why isn't peer review enough? Why would you take this extra step of uh, using a red team approach? There are a couple of reasons. So one is that the moment that the paper comes out, this is the end result of the scientific process. What you might not always see as a reader is that during the peer review process, some reviewers said, oh, this is pretty nice study, well done, but you actually have to redo it because you missed this one thing. And it's not uncommon for, for scientists, at least in, in my field, like I'm from experimental psychology, to uh, get peer reviews where the request is to collect additional data because you just missed something. And these peer reviewers who are experts have seen that something could have been improved. And you go back to the lab, you collect additional data, new study that 
addresses these issues, which is an effortful process. And it would be nice if you've heard this criticism before. So that would be one reason to do it. So basically before the peer reviewers tell you what's wrong, it has been caught before it's too late. That would be nice. A second reason to do it is that the peer review system as we have it is, well, experts look at it, but experts only have certain expertise. So what, well, in an extreme way, if you really want to make sure that your paper is solid and you have an extensive red team, so people with multiple expertise, you will get criticism on the statistical aspects, on the theoretical aspects, on the methodological expert aspects. And your reviewers might be experts in one or two of these things, but typically not everything. So it's always possible to miss something. And some journals work with uh, dedicated statistical reviewers in addition to the content reviewers, but that's, for example, already very rare. So yeah, you don't cover all your bases during peer review. You try as well as possible, but that's not a, yeah, if you really want to make sure you could have a bunch of experts all with their specific domains, look at the paper as well. One of the things that you wrote about in Nature in the journal Nature, you wrote a piece called Pandemic Researchers, Recruit Your Own Best Critics, uh, which will, I will link to in the show notes. That came out in May, and I want to talk about why you wrote that piece in a second in response to the tsunami of COVID research that we've been facing. But one of the things you wrote there is that there are mistakes, bugs, and a red team approaches based in part on software teams, as you said, finding bugs in software. But then there are also biases. And the Red Team Challenge approach is designed not to remove just bugs, but biases. What are some of the biases that a Red Team Challenge can can catch that, let's say, a normal peer review process might miss? Yeah. So again, it depends, of course, how you set up this Red Team and who you invite to take part of this. But um, for example, we're now, we're trying this out, right? It's a relatively new idea to incorporate this in into scientific processes. Again, maybe there are some uh, groups where this happens sometimes, but I'll give you an example of something we're working on now. And this is a group of researchers who are interested in doing a study, a meta-analysis of gender discrimination over time. Has it increased the amount of gender discrimination or has it actually reduced over time? And you can sort of imagine that regardless of what way this meta-analysis ends up, some people will be critical of the results. So they want to make sure that it's done as well as possible. But all of this, a meta-analysis, is a highly quantitative approach to addressing a research question. So one of the things we proposed here is to incorporate or include somebody in the red team who comes from, for example, gender studies, a field that is much more qualitative oriented, really sort of as a wild card. And we don't know what this leads to, but I think having really diverse perspectives in your team of critics can hopefully uh, not completely prevent any type of bias, but you give yourself the best shot to catch them. That would be the hope. So you wrote this piece in Nature. It came out in May, and it was in response to um, all the COVID research that we were facing. And the pandemic is all about fast science. And you said uh, in the piece, a scientific claim is as reliable as only the most severe criticism it has been able to withstand. And the fact that science is moving so fast is precisely why scientists should invest in reducing their own biases. What kind of feedback did you get from that Nature article? I think a lot of people recognize that there's room for an additional layer of, let's say, checking the reliability as you go along. So people, the reason that we have these preprints now in COVID uh, research is that people think, okay, if we find something, people should be able to 
incorporate it or use it as quickly as possible. So they don't want to wait for the formal review process, even though this is sometimes already sped up, but they don't want to wait. But there's no reason to, as you move forward, not have this criticism along. So I think that that aspect uh, was, I think, received quite positively. The problem is uh, that so far it's kind of difficult to organize this. So there are no, like we have a peer review system and it's actually an extensive sort of system of people and databases where you can look up certain individuals and we have somebody who's responsible for this. We don't yet have any yeah, place that is responsible or will help you to organize these red teams. So yeah, uh, that's something that we're working on now, whether we can actually help people to do this. So I think the idea is well received, the way to implement it needs to be developed. In your nature piece, you suggested, jokingly, I think that maybe it's time for a worst COVID-19 study competition. We're not hearing so much about sloppy COVID science these days, at least not publicly. I'm going to assume the problem hasn't gone away. We're just not hearing as much about it anymore. But I'll ask you, has the problem go, gone away or did we just get tired of talking about it? I think... There was a very rapid initial move to these kind of studies, which were so fast that we saw a lot, pro lot of problems. Um, but we also live in a time where criticism does happen very quickly online, for example. And these early studies sometimes already were, you know, received some pushback that some people thought, okay, the trade-off here is not so straightforward as I thought. Taking a bit more time is valuable. That doesn't mean there are so many of them. I think there are just too many of them to evaluate all of it uh, well. But I'm sure that we're going to learn a lesson from this in the future, that people will, meta scientists will take a look at what has happened here and evaluate the quality. But for now, this, the pace is so rapid that um, it's difficult to evaluate, I think, whether the problem has gone away. Uh, probably not completely, but um, the initial rush was uh, where the main main problems were, I think. When you wrote the piece, were you thinking about both peer-reviewed and preprint papers or one or the other as the biggest problem, or does it make sense to, to categorize that way? I think for the preprints, we just see what happens if it hasn't gone through the peer review process. But from my experience as a scientist, the peer review process, when it happens, you very often have people who have to go back and make mistakes and get criticism that is so severe that for me, it's really both of them. Because I think for the normal research, we're going to save, if the red team does its job well, it will earn its place. It will save resources. It will make science more efficient. I think, right? So if, if it really picks up all of the problems, um, then you don't have to go back and redo certain things. And I think in the long run, the biggest gain is in those, in the normal research process, I think. Great. So the pandemic we've been told over and over again is all about fast science, getting science to market. I read a study earlier this year that was looking at submission to publication times for most journals for articles on research about COVID-19. And that submission to publication time had decreased by a factor of 10, these authors had estimated. And the median submission to publication time was five days, right? So their point was, look, this high process efficiency is correlated with poor information quality. But when you've got a premium on speed, as we do now, how do you fit a red team into this dynamic? Aren't they going to slow things down to unacceptably slow rates? I think any additional quality control mechanism you build in will slow people down to a certain extent because you have to communicate with these people. You have to give them some time to look at things. 
the benefit of not having the peer review process, which comes at the end, but by incorporating it in every step is they can move almost as quickly as you can move. You have to keep them informed. And uh, as you are discussing things yourself and developing ideas yourself and implementing them, the other group of people tries to look over your shoulder and tell you, no, this is wrong. This is wrong. This is wrong. But it is a more continuous process. So I would hope that it's possible. And again, I also don't recommend that we do this for every individual study we do. But for some, for example, at my university, there was a researcher who studied whether the gyms could open again. And he studied the air circulation. And this was a huge, important study that really would uh, impact policy quite directly, whether they would open gyms back up or not. Well, for a study like this, I think there is definitely time and room to build in this additional layer, I would say. Okay. So there is another study that you set up, you and a team of co-authors assembled a red team yourself for a paper and review. And I'm forgetting the topic. You will, you will remind me of it. It is not the ones that you've mentioned in the conversation uh, so far, but talk about the paper and how did you set up the red team and then what did it find? Yeah. So this paper, we, we thought it would be just interesting to try this out, to see what happens, because there are a lot of uncertainties. Like, can you even find people who are interested to criticize work? So there, so we had a paper that was not completely done, but pretty far. Authors would be tempted to submit it as it was. And we opened this up for criticism. So this was a paper by Nicholas Coles and his co-authors on a psychology topic related to processing of facial emotions, facial expressions. And they were ready to submit this more or less. And we invited five people with uh, diverse uh, viewpoints, statistics, methods, uh, content expertise to go through this uh, paper uh, as it was and criticize it. So that's not completely the full thing that we would uh, recommend now and that we're trying to develop now where you really, as you go along, get this criticism here, most of it was done. But in this case, um, it led to the authors themselves to decide to actually not submit this work and to run some additional studies uh, because they agreed with a lot of the criticism they got, which is an interesting finding, I think. I think it's interesting that um, this is a paper we, that this co-author selected because he thought, okay, this is really about as good as I can do it. And I would submit this as it is. And even then, yeah, the criticism was so strong that that he was convinced after this to, to add additional studies. So we're trying, trying it out. I think it's a relatively new thing in science. In software development, for example, it's much clearer what your target is. If you can break into like a folder or you get access to some, it's very clear when the criticism should be dealt with. And in science, it's slightly less clear. Like maybe, maybe I just want to ignore everything you say. So we're really trying to also develop what should it look like to implement it in practice. So you paid bounties, you paid a stipend to each red team member, right? And then yeah. you paid, you donated to a Goodwill top-ranked charity uh, with a cap on the donations, maximum cap of $2,000 for every new critical problem that was detected by the team members. But then you also paid, I believe, a bounty for bugs yeah. that the team found. And you blogged about this, uh, and I'll link to those blogs in the show notes, but how important is it to pay people on the red team to find stuff? What are we, is that a good sign? Because most of the time in peer review, well, in peer review, you don't get paid for being a reviewer, right? Uh, it's an honor to be asked to review and often a burden, but <laughs> yeah. we don't talk about that. But we're paying people to find bugs. Yeah. What are we saying with that? And is, how effective was it? Yeah. 
so that was one of the reasons why we did it to see what would happen here. And you're right, peer review is normally free, which is not completely free. It means that people volunteer to do this. They also submit things. So, but yeah, very often we are doing this on the side and we have a number of hours that we will dedicate to peer review because we're not getting paid. We're already busy. What we wanted to do was make sure that the people who give the criticism are not dependent on whether the paper is published or not. So what we could, of course, also have done is say, well, if you give good criticism, you can become a co-author on the paper. But then the, init- the incentive for people to be as critical as possible, maybe to the extent that the paper becomes unpublishable because it's just too flawed, we wanted to guarantee that that could still happen. So for this reason, we paid them a normal wage, a decent wage. That was the baseline. So everybody got a decent wage. And then we also thought, well, but maybe these people will just say, thanks for the money. I'm just going to sit back and, you know, why would I search for bucks? So then we build in the second incentive where people for every uh, critical mistake they would find, we would make a donation of $100 to a Goodwill charity which after the fact, when we interviewed all these people, they're like, no, I just really like to criticize uh, people. I mean, I don't care about the goodwill. I don't care about altruistic. I just love to do this. So we wouldn't maybe keep that second part. People, if you pay them, they will just do it. I mean, yeah, it's just uh, good enough. But I think it's important. This payment process is important. So you're really, yeah, giving people compensation for their time. You did say, I think you wrote this, or maybe it was Ruben, Ruben Arslan, one of the... Yeah, Ruben Arslan, who was the arbiter. So after talking with red team members, we started to think that certain people might enjoy red teaming as a job. It's challenging, requires skills, and improves science. This opens up the possibility of a freelance services marketplace for error detection. How feasible do you think that is? Have we found a a new personality type, (laughs) the red team personality type? Yeah. So we're really interested in in figuring this out uh, to the extent that we will be uh, launching a, a place where people can sign up to do this work and where we'll try to match them up with people who are looking for criticism. And I think I wouldn't be surprised if there's a large group of people who like to do this. Science is now very individually oriented. So you have to be your own sort of shop. Uh, you're your, you know, you push your own research. You, you you're responsible for your own uh, career progress, and it's not really set up in a sort of team format uh, for most disciplines in any case. But there are a lot of people who don't necessarily want to be this uh, p- personal investigator model where they are the only person uh, responsible. But they want to work in a team, and they want to work in a team and be this sort of person that makes sure that it's as good as possible. Uh, through their criticism. So there's almost no role for these people now in science. It's not a job. You won't get you know, a career progress by criticizing the work of other people. But there is a group of people who really likes to play this part. And um, yeah, so we, we have a pretty good hope that um, maybe not full-time jobs, but for, sort of as a side job for some people as extra income instead of TAing, so like being a teaching assistant or instead of doing some other things that some people would love to do this. Uh, because it's a good way to help science get better, right? You're really contributing directly to not just after the fact, criticizing a study, saying, hey, this went wrong, but saying, hey, if you change this, it will be better. So that's an interesting yeah, contribution to science. So it strikes me, though, that with the red team, plus the arbiter, plus the researcher team, you've created an ecosystem. And there has to be a dynamic in that ecosystem of willingness, willingness to find problems, willingness to respond to problems. And the way that the red team is set up, as I understand it, is the red team finds things, suggests, 
the arbiter sifts through those suggestions and says, this is a major problem, this is a minor problem. And then those things are presented to the authors and they make decisions about how they're going to respond. And there is transparency about the entire process. Do I have that correct? Yeah, exactly. Okay. There was a red team process that you wrote about involving the Psychological Science Accelerator, which is a global network of uh, about 500 psychology laboratories. You were involved with the red team process. Talk about what that taught you about transparency in the red team process and how important that is. Yeah. So I was not involved directly in the process. I was actually, my role there was the traditional peer reviewer. And this, uh, but this psychological science accelerator is an example of a collaboration that's so large. There are indeed hundreds of uh, psychologists doing research together on the same project around the world. It's a very novel initiative, but very exciting, very collaborative, large network. And it's so large that they can have specialists within their collaboration who don't do data collection or those things, but they are checking parts of the process. So this is similar to the red team issue. They they identified a couple of aspects of the study that they thought should be improved. And this was for a registered report. So what I reviewed was the plan, the plan for the research. It wasn't done yet. So I was asked to review this for a journal. And then I came up with many of the same points as a reviewer, which is good. I mean, and I think the uh, red team actually came up with even more points, not everything that I found as well. But then the authors thought, no, this is fine as it is. So it's really at the risk of the authors to ignore this criticism early on. And and here, I think what you saw is that if authors are free to ignore it, of course, researchers are free to ignore it, but then it might sort of bite, bite them later on because peer reviewers might find the same criticisms. So I would recommend that these issues, if they're identified, are taken very seriously. But that's, of course, difficult because you have to admit that maybe... Yeah, maybe something was not optimal and maybe due to speed or whatever, you want to just continue on. So that's what what this process sort of showed, that um, it is probably sensible to listen to these critics if you have them in your team, but it's not always done, indeed. Andrew Gelman, the statistician, has written about how scientists are trained to respond defensively and with minimal changes, these are his words, to legitimate scientific criticism, because that's what gets a paper through peer review right? You respond aggressively and you make as, as few changes as possible, right? You really don't admit that you've made a mistake. Why will red teams be any different? I mean, the, the example you just cited seems to me like a classic scientific response to criticism. So yeah. are there mechanisms that we can, we can install within the red team, like publicly publishing all of the red, all of the author responses to the red team suggestions that will sort of enforce this dynamic of accountability. Yeah. So I think there are two, two things that what you say is exactly what I think uh, is the ideal situation. So if this process is transparent and open, and that's actually what this psychological science accelerator also did. That's why I could see that other people had already raised similar criticisms. But what they hadn't done is they sort of made themselves available to assist other researchers in COVID times to collect data that would be helpful for COVID research. But what they hadn't agreed upon is that uh, the people on the other side had to listen to this team. So I think what red teams, um, what should red, make red teams different is that you enter an agreement where you go through a process where you, from the outset, before you know what's going to happen, you say, we're going to go through this process together 
And we think we do this because we think it will improve the quality of our research. And that involves listening carefully to criticism. We now, from the outset, say we're going to listen to you. And ideally, because it's not too late, right? The defensive criticism is often to defend research you've already done and in the hopes that it will pass the peer review process. But here, there's no direct threat of not getting through peer review. The threat is actually that if you ignore criticism, you won't get through peer review later because the same thing. So I hope it will be uh, in a more collaborative collaborative spirit. And um, well, we're trying it out, you know, we're trying uh, after our own pilot, we're trying it out somewhere else. And we really see people who are like, yeah, yeah, we want to we wanna learn, we want to improve, we don't want to do it wrong. So that I think should be the attitude if you enter this uh, process. Do you see, because I do, and if you don't, that's fine. But I see a lot of communication value for uh, researchers in promoting the fact that they've had a red team process for their research. It's like an ex- it's like a certification. You're completely transparent about it. You can say I've responded to all these criticisms. Then I submitted it to the journal for peer review. It came through with this, but that red team certification and the process and the openness of it are very beguiling in an era where we're really concerned about replicability, we're really concerned about fraud, we're really concerned about the limits of, of a single paper and whether it's been overframed or not. So do you see communications value in doing this above and beyond the fact that it strengthens the quality of the research? I think that if the process works out as intended, it should accurately signal that you can trust this a little bit more than studies that haven't gone through this process just because it survived additional rounds of criticism. Similar to how you would probably trust a paper more if you heard that 17 people were peer reviewers compared to one person was a peer reviewer and was also one of your close friends. So the process should instill criticism. It automatically, like the moment that you say, hey, how about this This signal something and it's like a, a sign of... I don't want it to be, you know, there's a trick. People will just uh, use it, right? Misuse this sort of red team system. You can just wait for somebody to say, hey, we had a red team, but actually it was just a couple of our friends. And, you know, so (laughs) anything that becomes a target will be sort of misused, I think. But yes, if it's done well, and if there is a way to guarantee this uh, process, and I think the openness you mentioned earlier is really important here, because if this is open, anybody can go in and see for themselves, like, okay, this was the real thing then yeah, I hope it would um, instill some trust in people. Can a scientist get this kind of review just by asking on Twitter? (laughs) Or does it help to set up the processes of a red team? Because, you know, the way we are reviewing preprints anyway seems to be through Twitter. Yeah, I think the novelty of it now is so large that you can get away with just asking some people on Twitter like we did. So we just advertised it and people volunteered. And But I think in the long run, what you want to do is create a system where it becomes a bit easier. So where people can find each other, where people can sign up for the one side to volunteer to do this. Not, I mean, volunteer, but still for payment, of course. But Or maybe even in the future for, as a tit for tat sort of strategy, like I'll do it for you and then I get some points and then I can ask someone else to do it for me. And so it could be a free system, could be a paid system. But uh, I think it's useful to try to organize this a little bit more. Yeah, uh, because in our case, we are pretty... I think pretty well known for wanting to improve uh, the way we do science. So we have a lot of people interested in what we work on. And for us, it's relatively easy to find people, Uh, but we want to make it easy for everybody. Also, if you don't have a large network, 
to find people. What motivated you personally to get involved in the red team approach? <laughs> Were you seeing a problem? Was the, is there a story that you can tell about research gone wrong? What has motivated you to adopt this approach and test pilots and, and advocate for it? I think that we just see that there is no place for the critics. I love critics. Like I think criticism in science is really important, but it's not appreciated. People very often get upset if you criticize their work. So there seems to be no place where these people can do their work without being told like, oh, you're so harsh or you're so, you know, uh, aggressive or something. I mean, it's very often a critic, you know, yeah, people don't like them very often if they, uh, even if they do it for the best intentions. So that's always an interest. How can we make sure that there is room for criticism in science? Because I think we need a bit more of it. So that's the driving idea between behind more more of the work we do. And then for this idea, I, I remember that we were just discussing it with a, a group of uh, our close colleagues, and we just thought this sounds like too fun not to try. It might just work. And I think it surprised us a little bit when we just tried it. It surprised us a little bit how well it worked, like how interesting it was what people brought up. If you just have a bunch of experts to go through your work, it's just amazing to see. And yeah, you learn a lot. So so that sort of, yeah, we, we were convinced after this to, to really yeah work on it a bit more. But I think this place for critics that I think is really important. We should We should want to have these people on board. Uh, in science, and we don't we don't reward them as much as we should. I think. Does it suggest a crisis in peer review as well? What are your thoughts about that? The peer review system is as good as the peers that are involved in any single <laughs> review. So sometimes it goes wonderfully, and sometimes it doesn't work so well. So it's it's a noisy system, a relatively noisy system. Uh, that's fine. We have other safeguards like public criticism after the fact. This also happens. So a paper went through the period and we still criticize them. So I don't know. Is there a crisis? I mean, I see science more as something that is continuously improving. I find it extremely unlikely that we figured out the absolute best way to do it given limited resources and that in 200 years we'd be like, oh yeah, those people in 2020, they had it. That was it. That's the best we can do. So, So I see it as continuous improvement. Don't forget that things like the internet are for many scientists relatively new. I mean, maybe yes, 20, 30 years, but it's still relatively new that we are so that we can share information so easily. We can store it so easily. We can give people access now to our data and to our materials. And But then we didn't figure out what are people going to do with this? Or should people, should reviewers actually look at our data and reanalyze it? Or what should they do with this? So we're still figuring out the best ways to to improve the peer review process from, from where we started uh, to where it can go in the future. Ruben Arslan, who we mentioned earlier, uh, served as a neutral arbiter in the Red Team Challenge for the, for the pilot paper. He wrote in a blog post uh, that after he had been through this process, after he had seen what the Red Team came up with, as well as how the authors responded, the difference that struck him was that most peer reviewers follow a low effort strategy. And he said, quote, a mixed bag of crucial issues, nice to haves, annoying idiosyncrasies, and flat out wrong comments. So it feels to me like the red team is really, the red team adds focus and the arbiter adds the ability to sift through and decide what's big and what's small. And there's an efficiency and a drive to the whole process that might be lacking from peer review. What are your thoughts about that? 
yes, I think one thing that is much more motivating is to come up with criticism that can improve things when it still matters. There's just a point if if the study has already been done and you look through it, you can be like, well, actually, you know, this this selection of stimulus was also not optimal, but you know, who am I to now criticize it because they did it? This is what they've done, and all right. So it's much more motivating to try to work on improving something. And there's really the time issue and the money issue. I think we should just accept that people who are peer reviewing something, yes, they will go through, they'll note the main things, but you could keep going on. And if we see, we hired people to work for approximately 10 hours on uh, their specific thing. So just the statistics or just the methods or just the theory. And so that's quite a lot of hours altogether. And that's not what you're going to get in our peer review system as it works now, because 10 hours is more than a workday. And Many people are not willing to spend a workday on a paper and they don't get five uh, peer reviewers. So yeah, I think it should work better, of course. Uh, you're also investing more in it, So, so, but it should work better. And I think it, it does. Where do you go next with the Red Team Challenge idea? So what we're doing now is really, really trying to make it possible for people to find these critics. So we, we're creating... A website, an online marketplace where people can sign up on the one hand to become a critic. Uh, they have expertise. They want to contribute to this process. And on the other hand, to solicit critics for a process. So find certain people with expertise. And this is something that we thought, yeah, we just need to try this. After seeing, seeing the process work out, we thought we have to just see if we can make this uh, a reality. So we're going to launch this um, uh, very soon. It's not online yet, but we're trying this out. And it's just the next small step where we're going to see, are people interested? Really? I mean, we know some people who are interested in, but how many people are interested in doing this to uh, give criticism? But more importantly, how many people are willing to offer up their research uh, for criticism from people uh, that they might not directly know to make it better? It requires an investment. It requires uh, some bravery, I would say, and also a dedication to really make your research as good as possible. But I think there are many projects for which people will, will see the value. So, so that's the next thing that we want to try. Just really see if we can bring these people together. Are these uh, skeptics and these critics, people who love to do this, do they really exist? Are there as many of them uh, willing to contribute to science as I think there are? And also, are there the, the other side, the people who are willing to incorporate criticism a bit more than now? And if that works out, that would be great to see. Are you targeting psychology out of the gate or is there a larger subset of social science? Initially, because um, so there's a team uh, of five people working on this. People were involved in the pilot project as well. So um, um, Leni Tiokin uh, is working on this. Nicholas Coles, who offered his paper, uh, Patrick Fersher and Ruben Arslan and myself. And we have a certain expertise where we can check the quality. So I think if you want to do this, you have to make sure that the process works. And we don't know if the process will work. Uh, but we know that we can evaluate the quality of the process if it stays close to what we have expertise in. So that will be statistics methods, psychology. That's where we'll start with this process. Otherwise, we can't evaluate how well it works. Um, if we invite economics to criticize economics papers, we don't know if the process increased the quality of the work. So we're starting close to home and see, see if there's interest. A benefit is that this sort of work, psychologists have been going through this replicability crisis for a while, and they're very active in thinking of ways to improve the way they work. So there should be, if there is a community out there interested in this stuff, it should be in psychology, I hope. What are the research questions? I'm going to assume that you are going to be investigating 
the community that you pull together and the red team challenges that you are able to facilitate, you're going to be looking at those with research questions in mind. What are some of the research questions that you're going to be investigating as this initiative develops? From, from the outset, I think we'll just have very simple qualitative questions, which don't require any research, but just will this work? Is there interest? But if there is something that keeps running like this, I think it's very valuable to do research. I mean, again, if people are uh, consenting and want to uh, contribute their data to this, then uh, I think it would be interesting to compare it to traditional peer review. That would be, I think, one of the first things. You have a paper that went through this red team process compared to peer review and how comparable is it? Because we are, again, asking people to make some investment. So what are you getting for this? How much better is this process? And then if it is pretty good at what it does, we could really consider, yeah, uh, suggesting this to people who are doing research where we think that it will be high impact stuff, important for policy recommendations or sensitive topics or any kind of topic now that, uh, yeah, often uh, misses, misses the, the quality uh, control a little bit and has large impacts in public uh, in, for the public, I would say. So that, that would be interesting, I think, making a comparison. Do you see funding institutions, for example, or governments getting interested in this if, it's, if it works to ensure that the research that's coming out, that their funding is of high quality? Yeah, I have to say that indeed, it seems to me that it could be for certain projects, a very sensible investment. And, and to be honest, I'm not the only one because um, I, we, we discussed about these red team things with colleagues and, and actually a colleague at a very different department. I work at a technical university, but somebody in biomedical research um, was working on a very large grant and says, I like this so much. And I want to signal that I'm really going to do a very good job as good as possible. I want to already write this into my grant proposal. And this is a person who's not into these kind of meta science things. He's not doing it because he thinks it's an interesting scientific development. He's just doing this because he wants his research to be as good as possible. And this for me really thought, hmm, people even outside of psychology think this is interesting enough to write it in a grant. For me, that makes sense that you have a team in your grant and you say, okay, we have these people on board. They will criticize us, keep us sharp, make sure this can be as good as it can be. It seems like a sensible investment. Daniel, it's such an exciting idea. Best of luck with it. And thank you for talking with us. Thanks for your interest. You can find show notes, a transcript of my chat with Daniel, and more at our website, scienceplusstory.com slash podcast. If you like the episode, please rate or review us and tell a friend about us. Resonate Recordings engineers Science Plus Story. Mikhail Poro composed our theme music. I'm Bob Lullish. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.